I'm Prime Minister Boris Johnson and you're listening to Brits in the Big Apple with Hannah Young, Consul General. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple with Hannah Young and I'm delighted to have Oliver Franklin as our special guest for today. Oliver is the British Honorary Consul to Philadelphia. Oliver, welcome to Brits in the Big Apple. Thank you so much, Hannah. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, Oliver, I wonder if you could start by explaining to us what is an honorary consul? Well, an honorary consul is a representative of a foreign country who is first and foremost a citizen of the host country. So all honorary consuls have to be U.S. citizens. We are halfway recognized by the State Department, but if we are arrested, there's no diplomatic in intervention. And we perform regular functions like looking after country people in my patch, which is Philadelphia, uh, UK citizens, some Commonwealth citizens. And um, we do whatever the, uh, in this case, you, Hannah, and the Consul General and the ambassador asked me to do, but mainly it's primarily trade and investment. It's not just going off to parties. I am often in a lot of very interesting parties and invariably an American woman with a British husband after her third drink will come up to me and say something like, you know, my husband should be the honorary consul because he's a real Brit. And I say in my best American accent, well, I won't be here forever. And when I am gone, he should certainly apply, knowing perfectly well that if he's a British citizen, he can't make it. But in any event, it's always fun to tell people you have to be a US citizen. It's a great honor to be an honorary consul and um, to be involved with the British and all of the issues and concerns and triumphs that we have with our great cousins of the United States. So um, I've been doing it for over 25 years and um, it's just a real pleasure working with all the Brits and the Americans and the Brits in the Philadelphia area. That's amazing. And uh, you're right, we've, we've worked very closely together Absolutely. since I've been here. Uh, and I've greatly valued your, um, the way that you represent British interests in Philadelphia and, and you're um, a bit of a bridge, I think, for us between uh, our U.S. community and, and the British community as well. Well, it's, I mean, I always think soft power is very important and education, uh, particularly traveling abroad. And I was very fortunate to be in a British university when I was 21, 22, 23. I didn't have a care in the world and I enjoyed myself. I made very, very good friends. And I immersed myself in British culture of the 60s, which was, you know, quite tumultuous. And over the years, I've kept those relationships going. So I've had a long relationship. And most important, I've had a deep respect uh, for the British people. I've had a deep, a deep respect for British history. And uh, I'm just very optimistic about the way things are going and how we're going to be able to work out our common issues. I think it's fabulous that the Brits are hosting Cap 26 in Glasgow, just to show that the Brits have real leadership 
when it comes to a global issue, an existential issue like climate change. And COP26 is happening at this moment as we record this interview. At this moment. <laughs> uh, I'm happy to say, I'm happy to say I'm actually in England. Um, I'm actually at Balliol College, Oxford, um, as we are doing this interview. So I am inundated with all the issues with climate change. It's on everyone's lips. And people here realize that COP26 is very important for global Britain. So you find everyone really interested in, in what's happening there in Glasgow. Good. I mean, it's such an existential issue for all of us. It's, mm -hmm. um, it's absolutely crucial. And we um, hope at this point in time that they'll be able to make good progress. As John Kerry said, it's the last best moment um, for the world to come together to up its level of ambition. Um, Oliver, you, you mentioned that you're at Balliol. And that was where you studied, is that right? That was where I studied. Um, it's uh, one of the oldest colleges at Oxford and um, I'm back for a few days and it's always a pleasure to come back. And the longer you're away from it, you know, the more respect you get from everyone. So I've been out 50 plus years, so I get all the respect. <laughs> just, just to give um, uh, grads of British universities that longevity, has this usefulness in an old culture like Britain. Um, and tell us more about your relationship with the UK. You go back and forth quite a bit, I think. Can well, I, I think it's on, it's on many levels. It's on the social level um, by keeping up relationships with people I've known for 50 plus years. Um, it's also on the business level because what Americans don't realize is that our, our, our Britain is one of our largest trading partners. I know China gets a lot of press and a lot of other countries, Italy, but in my region of Philadelphia and in Pennsylvania, the Brits are the largest employers outside of the US, the largest foreign employer in the state of Pennsylvania and the city of Philadelphia are British firms. And it's, it's a lot easier for Brits to do business in the UK. Our cultures are very similar. I mean, we have a different language to some degree, but our cultures are very similar. And uh, we also believe in the rule of law, which is very important in maintaining um, business relationships. So it's been very good for me and for the Brits uh, to do business with each other. I'm in the investment business. So I've spent a lot of time with asset managers um, in London, particularly, and asset managers in New York and, and in Philadelphia. So it's been a good relationship. So that's on the business side. The cultural side is interesting. I'm African-American and um, I'm very interested in uh, what's going on with Black Britain. Uh, they have a term, you know, ethnic minorities because in America, we're sort of binary. We used to be black and white when I was coming up. Now we're sort of triangulated. We're black, brown, and white. But in Britain, it's much broader. It's Pakistanis, it's Indians, it's Nepalese, it's West Africans. It's, you know, it's, it's really the world um, in the UK. So the issues there are more like ethnic minorities. So it's, it's fascinating to me to watch the UK society adjust to not being primarily a Middle English or Scottish, Welsh or Irish society, but to welcome 
all these folks from the Commonwealth who were really responsible for making Britain the great imperial nation, the global nation that is, is that it is, to watch them become integrated in British society. It's not without its challenges, as the United States can attest to, but uh, there's a lot of progress being made um, in the UK. And I've often said that in Britain, there, there is not legal residential segregation. And in the United States, what we have is legal segregation. We had a situation uh, before the 60s where the government would not give loans to homes that were in integrated areas because they felt if it was integrated, it would lower the value of the home. So we're a society where we grew up with people living separately. And the legacy of that we are still experiencing today. You don't have that in Britain. I mean, people do live together, particularly in the working class communities. You can go into a working class community, you'll see all colors, all religions. And so it's just a very interesting, um, really exhilarating experience to watch a global cosmopolitan culture like Britain uh, come together. And you're shining a light on some of these issues through this new project that you have with Balliol and the American Museum of the Revolution. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about your That's work? That's very, I mean, it's, it's a great project because in November of 2019, I was elected an honorary fellow of Balliol. And uh, I never in my life thought I'd ever be an honorary fellow of anything. I knew I was the honorary British consul and that was fine enough, but I became an honorary fellow. And um, it's sort of a, I mean, I suppose it's given to people who they feel, alumni who they feel have made major contributions. I use major with a small M in my case, but nevertheless, um, I, I had dinner with a professor named Sudhir Hazari Singh, who's our politics professor who had just written a book on Toussaint Louverture and it's called Black Spartacus. This book is so fabulous, so fantastic that I wrote a proposal to the college and said, why don't we do an exhibition on slavery, the slave trade and the college? The college was founded in 1263. Clearly it was there doing the slave trade. And let's look in our college archives to see what we can find. And of course, in everything around race, uh, whether you're in the UK or in the US or in Brazil, there's always a lot of fear and apprehension and ambiguity, and that's normal. So the college was, well, maybe we should. And finally, they agreed that they would do it. And very interesting, what we found was the income from the slave trade was less than we thought in terms of the college. And the second thing we found that the college at the time had a large amount of abolitionists in it, students, professors who were opposed to the slave trade. So it was just a very interesting process. And we created a 50 minute film on the project, which in itself is interesting and educational. But the most important, I think, aspect, the exhibition is fabulous, the film is fabulous, but we're doing a two-year teacher seminar for secondary school educators 
to study the transatlantic slave trade. And we have educators in Southern England, where Oxford is, and educators in the Philadelphia region. And for two years, they're going to meet every six weeks via Zoom. They're gonna have major professors of historians speaking about an aspect of the slave trade. And then in June, this coming June, the teachers in Britain are gonna to come to the States. They're gonna to come to Philadelphia for a week or so to meet with the teachers here. And then the following June of 23, uh, the teachers uh, from the States are going to go over to Britain. And we'll have to figure out how to get continuing education credits, which we are working on now. But we are in a cultural, um, a unique cultural moment where the issues of race are centerpiece to how we understand our national conversation and how we understand our national narrative. In the United States, it's very political. Uh, you know, white, some white parents feel if you teach the slave trade, you're making their kids feel embarrassed or making your kids feel guilty. And black parents feel, some of them, that if you teach the slave trade, you are re-traumatizing their children. So both sides, black side, the African-American side, the white side, both sides have issues and the teachers are caught in the middle because their job is to educate students. So we think that this seminar will go a long way in helping to educate. So as we move forward and deal with climate change and get through whatever this country, this world is going through in, 20, in, in the 21st century, that we'll have a real understanding. When I say real, I mean a historical understanding of how our nations and societies were created and the contributions that everyone made to it. It sounds like an incredible and multifaceted project. And I love the fact that it's got a forward looking element as well through the work that you're doing to bring together the teaching community to help tell the story. Was there anything as you were going through the project that particularly surprised you? Was there anything that stood out as something that you weren't expecting? And you mentioned about money and you know funds, but for you, what, what stood out? Well, a couple of things stood out. Number one, I expected a tremendous backlash. I had a discussion this morning with the librarian, uh, the college librarian, and I, I wrote a note to the master and to everyone involved in this project saying, put on your armor because every the knives are gonna come out uh, because you're studying something that people feel uncomfortable talking about race. And, and so when, the, when it was done, I was expecting this huge backlash, but to my surprise, the British uh, society has been embracing of the project. And in talking with a tutor yesterday, he said people embraced it because they felt it was even handed. And what happens when we talk about race or difference, 
one side always feels the other side is trying to uh, get the goods on them or trying to blame them for something. And this is an academic institution and we are seekers of the truth, however you define it, but most important, we're seekers of facts. So that's one of the things that surprised me. And the second thing, as I mentioned, was I had in my mind that we were going to discover that, you know, most of the college were slave traders and terrible and horrible people, only to discover that very few were, and that the college itself was an abolitionist college. And of course, I um, am trying to get a more balanced view of Britain and the slave trade, because What's taught in school is really Wilberforce and the abolitionists and how they got rid of the slave trade, but nothing is taught about King James I and the Royal Africa Company and how the slave trade began. And very little is taught about how when parliament abolished the royal monopoly on slave trading, which they had to do, all of these entrepreneurs came up who were slave traders. I mean, they were smart, they were quick, they could get Africans quicker. They began to engage in all the aspects of it, the rum, the cotton. And all of this was very important in the entrepreneurial nation that Britain became in the 1800s and the 1790s because abolishing the Royal Africa Company created the opportunity for entrepreneurs to go out, create businesses without having fear that a royal uh, company would come in and become a monopoly. That's seminal in how Britain evolved economically. So part of what we're trying to do is get a more ba ba balanced view. I don't mind people talking about Wilberforce. I don't mind people talking about abolition. I think it's very important but we must know the forces they were up against and the real success they had in getting the slave trade abolished. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. Definitely. Uh, and um, it's great to hear that the reaction was overwhelmingly positive and not as you expected that it might be. Um, what, what do you hope that people will get out of it? Well, people who may not necessarily have a pre-existing relationship with Balliol, uh, but who want to understand more about the history of the country, as you say, and, and the relationship that we have with the slave trade. I, I want people to get out of taking it personal. Um, everybody, when you talk about race, you put people in camps. So you say, oh, you're black. So all of a sudden, there's this whole image of stereotype of what you believe about everything because you're African-American or you're black or you're white or you're Chinese or you're this and you're that. But what I'm hoping people can take away from looking at a history of the slave trade, yes, it was violent. Yes, it was terrible. It was all of these things, but no one here on earth today is personally to blame for it. And the job here is to let people know that the slave trade was important, that racism is here, but that we're not blaming an individual personally for the historical legacy. And if we can teach that, 
Then I think we can get people having a beer, sitting across the table and honestly having a discussion. Reason, you know, for, you know, the queen and her speech at COP26 and the Prince of Wales when he speaks and president of the United States spoke, all they're asking people to do as nations is sit down, let's agree on a common goal and let's agree on a common way to deal with the goal and not make one thing, not make one country have one thing, one country have another thing. If we can apply that to our understanding of our history and particularly our understanding of race in our history, then I think we'll be prepared to deal with some of the issues we have as individuals, as opposed to being a member of a unidentified group called white or black. I think that's a really powerful point uh, around identity. Um, identity, absolutely. The constraints so much, we, we give each other. No, I, I think you've, I mean, you really hit the point. Um, we've got to broaden how we define identity and we have to let people know or we have to articulate many identities for an individual person. You know, uh, I have an identity as a lover of Britain. I have an identity as uh, going off to a college. I have an identity as being married. Identity as a father, identity as a grandfather. All of these things make up a human being. And when we, when we only give you one aspect of your identity, we're doing us all a big disservice. And so that's what I'm trying to do is broaden the whole issue of how we think of identity. I love that. It's incredibly powerful. Uh, and so you're in the UK at the moment uh, supporting this project. You'll be yes. coming back to Philadelphia very soon to continue. Friday. I mean, I'm only here for three days, okay. of, which each, of which day two, I have to take a COVID test and day four, which is tomorrow, I go back to the same place and take another test. So it's so interesting about the pandemic because um, I'm speaking to a group of university students tomorrow. And one of the things I'm really gonna talk about is the role of pandemics in changing society. The Black Death, which is what we all know about as a pandemic, changed Britain. Number one, there were so few people left that landowners had to pay more. Wages increased as a result of the Black Death. Uh, society changed. Even the yellow fever epidemic in the 1790s in Philadelphia, where people were dying in the streets and you know, there weren't enough graves, that changed the society in Philadelphia. It allowed African-Americans to play a bigger role because they were the ones going in looking after the sick. People began to think of them differently. It changed wages as, the, as what happened during the Black Death because there were fewer people left. And interestingly enough, in pandemics, as we're discovering now, people thought they had the power to pick and choose. So in Philadelphia, we are always lamenting the fact that we can't get enough restaurant workers. People in retail are saying, oh my God, I'll give you a $500 bonus if you sign up. 
because pandemics change the way people think about themselves and think about themselves outside of their homes. So I, I really want the students to get a sense of how this pandemic is changing our societies. And this is global, which is different. I mean, other pandemics were European, the Black Death, you know, but this is a global pandemic. And, and so I really want the students to begin to think, and there are no answers. I mean, I don't have any answers. The question is, let's ask the right questions and see where we go with them. That we've got to consider what role the pandemic is going to play uh, globally and how it's going to change our society and how we have to change uh, to get adjusted to it. Thank you for all of your work with us as our honorary consul and um, we really look forward to seeing how the project continues. And Thank you for your support and I really appreciate the fact that the British have a very strong network in the United States and the support that you've given to this has been invaluable and everybody over here is really grateful for it. So thank you very much indeed. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.